It is my honor to introduce to you Dr. Rao. Thank you very much. Uh, Your Excellency, Reverend Fathers, Sisters, all my friends here. Uh, I know that uh, you are my friends, and particularly Jim Vogel, because even though he told you that the program has to be adhered to by your coming early, he decided to bend the program, knowing the way in which I speak and go over time by giving me more time than I had last year. So I'll try not to disappoint him and <laughs> fill as much of the time that I have in front of me as possible. Now, um, one, one thing that I think I ought to mention to uh, introduce this topic is that the last thing that Octavian, when he was given the title of Imperator or Commander-in-Chief, and then reported to the Senate about the different kinds of changes that had to be made to put the Roman Republic back in order, and thereby create the institution that we call the Roman Empire. The last thing that he would have thought is that the Roman Empire in any way would have anything to do with a child born in Judea, or an institution called the Catholic Church, or even more, Kansas, um, and the Marriott Hotel in Kansas. Uh, but we here, if we had Octavian in front of us with Roman fortitude, would have to try to explain exactly what it is that has happened to allow for this uh, strange conjunction to take place. And what I want to do today is I want to approach this subject of the Catholic Church's heir to the Roman Empire in three steps. I want to first look upon the church as literal heir of the Roman Empire. Then I want to move on and talk about the church as perfecter and corrector and transformer of the inheritance that it gets from the Roman Empire. And then indicate in a way which will especially touch upon the subject of the papacy's role in uh, our whole topic uh, in this conference this weekend, I want to talk about the problems, the tension-filled enterprise of trying to put the inheritance and the perfection, correction, and transformation of that inheritance together. So it's a three-step enterprise that we're engaged in here today with then just a brief conclusion to try to tie things together. First of all, with respect to the, uh, the question of the church as literal heir of the Roman Empire, let's remember that um, the church obviously with its, its uh, uh, own origins, nevertheless has a physical body and a physical body that can, in many respects, uh, deal with, with uh, realities around it that will shape the structure of that physical body, that doesn't, that doesn't in any way prescind from its responsibilities uh, that are, are obvious uh, as part of the uh, entire, entire history of revelation and, uh, and uh, the, uh, the purpose of God in redemption. But much of what uh, forms part of the church as a physical structure is something that she can take from the world around her. And much of what she took in order to organize her physical body is taken from the Roman Empire. In fact, perhaps to speak more, more accurately, rather than being inherited, it's grabbed from the Roman Empire. Uh, its administrative shape, the church's administrative shape, her practical law, her legal procedures uh, are very, very much molded upon what it is that the Roman Empire was and what the Roman Empire did. It would be unnatural for the church not to have looked 
to the most successful physical organization around her, it would have been unnatural for her not to do this. And if it's unnatural, it means that it's also unchristian for her to do so as well. Uh, if you look at the Roman Empire and its structure, just in one simple, in some, one simple way, just one example, mo most of the empire was ruled by means of cities and municipal councils and cities that had responsibility not only for the cities, but for the rural areas around it. And it would have been, therefore, unnatural and unfitting for evangelization uh, if the successors of the apostles had not rooted themselves as bishops in cities and begun the work of, of correcting and transforming the world from that basis. And also with an international vision of the sort that the Roman Empire itself uh, had to nurture, which then uh, it has a deeper, deeper responsibility for preserving and then giving a new meaning to. Uh, secondly, it's also the literal heir, the Catholic Church, of the Roman Empire in an accidental way. It's a literal heir because on the physical level, due to problems, particularly in the western part of the Roman Empire, uh, it's a, a, a literal heir because of the fact that the church had to actually take up the responsibilities politically of the Roman Empire in certain circumstances. The donor, so to speak, of the inheritance collapsed in the West. And when that donor collapsed, the heir had to take over many of the responsibilities of the empire politically until the situation cleared up. And in certain areas, in certain um, minor uh, respects, it had to continue permanently carrying on some of these responsibilities. Now, we know many examples of this, particularly in places like the uh, large Roman area called Gaul. We know of many experiences where bishops became, in effect, the Roman authorities in given regions. Uh, one can think, for example, of uh, Bishop Saint-Germain in Auxerre, who was so much in demand as an advisor politically that he had to travel, not just around Gaul, but into Britain and several times as well. And of course, when we think of Rome, and we think of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, we have the great example of Gregory the Great to begin with in the late 500s and early 600s, feeling that he has the responsibility to begin taking care of the military defense of the city when the imperial authorities did not uh, display sufficient energy in doing so, and this kind of uh, assumption of political responsibilities in Rome will continue still greater, in still greater regards later on. I want to mention one other thing with respect to this accidental uh, inheritance of direct political responsibilities. The bishops in places like Gaul in particular, but with the case of Gregory the Great in Rome as well, were people who very often came from Roman senatorial families. What we call the Roman senatorial aristocracy was something that did not only involve Romans in the city of Rome themselves, but members of the aristocratic elite from around the empire. They were all, in one way or another, considered to be part of this Roman senatorial aristocracy. And over the course of the decades from the latter part of the 300s onwards, senatorial families gave their sons as bishops, who were often very, very much appreciated as bishops, 
But the thing that's especially significant for us to remember here is that the right to rule was in the hearts of these Roman senatorial families and the bishops coming from them. They knew how to rule, and they were ready to rule. And they were ready, therefore, to exercise the kind of authorities, whether ones that come directly from the message uh, that the church has to uh, adhere to, and then accidental experiences. And their great sense of being able to rule and knowing how to rule was an enormous aid to the evangelical uh, advance of the church. And then finally, with regard to this question of the church's literal heir to the empire, it's important for us to keep in mind that the empire, especially with regard to this aristocracy, this senatorial aristocracy that feels so much the right to rule and knows how to rule, that senatorial aristocracy and the empire that it served had an education of a particular character. Uh, the uh, the uh, education that someone of a Greco-Roman background entering into the governing elite had was an education that had been very, very much um, fixed over the course of centuries from the time of uh, the work of the great Greek poets and philosophers onwards. It's the education that uh, we refer to by means of the Greek word paideia, and it's got a certain understanding of what subjects have to be part of that education and how that education has to be carried out. And much of it is centered around a literary knowledge of the past. Much of it is centered around a, an understanding of what it is that one needs to know in order to govern. It also involves a, uh, a recognition of the importance of philosophy. Now that education that took seriously what it was that the Roman past, and that Roman past involves also a, uh, a marriage with the Greek past as well, that education which took seriously everything that came from the Greco-Roman past and was part then of the imperial heritage is one that the early church apologists and then church fathers recognized had substance to it. It had substance to it, it had character to it, it was part of a natural, um, uh, a natural uh, understanding of things that people on their own steam, using their native reason alone, had been able to grasp and put to practical use. And as a consequence, it was something that could not be abandoned. It was something that had permanent value because nothing that was truly natural was something that was superfluous as far as uh, a marriage with the Christian revelation was concerned. And the great figure that uh, introduces us to this whole subject of past education and the ability of Christianity to work with it, accept it, and use it is St. Justin Martyr in the second century AD, whom I'll get back to in another detail, uh, in some detail in a moment. It's St. Justin Martyr who points out to us that what it is that was done by the world uh, uh, before Christianity was not something that was uh, in some way totally reprehensible because people had managed to find and cultivate what he called seeds of the word, seeds of the logos. And so as a consequence, if what was going to happen is that you were going to work with 
uh, what was there on the spot already. It was your duty to be able to nurture these seeds of the Logos. Now that leads us into the second part of our discussion here today, which is the church as perfecter and corrector and transformer of an inheritance. This inheritance that involves uh, administrative structure to a certain degree, um, an inheritance that involves law and legal procedure, an inheritance that sometimes can involve political activity, an inheritance that involves an entire paideia or education. It has to correct this and perfect this and transform this. And what's quite interesting about the inheritance from the Roman Empire is that there is a great deal within that inheritance that begs to be completed and begs to be corrected and begs to be transformed. And the reason for this is because of the fact that as Christian thinkers in the early centuries of the church saw, when left on their own, all of the various elements that had value, that seemed to be natural, that came from the Roman imperial structure and the society that it represented, when they're all left on their own, they tend to become insipid. They, end to, they tend to become meaningless. They conflict with one another. They rely upon force or pure will in order to be able to achieve their goals, and they call out for something more that will make them better than they are at the moment, and which really the things that they, they, uh, that they emphasize, the points that these various aspects of the Roman inheritance emphasize, want to be on their own. And let me quote St. Justin Martyr in this regard. I have the great joy of quoting from my own book, uh, which uh, I enjoy. And uh, given the fact that I only have an hour or so here, if you want the entire story, get the book. Uh, let me quote from Justin Martyr just a bit of the point that I'm trying to make. And what he's talking about here is the fact that the good that's there in the Roman Empire and all that it represents needs to be completed. This is just one quotation from among many of his. For whatever either lawgivers or philosophers uttered well, they elaborated by finding and contemplating some part of the logos, the word. But since they did not know the entire logos, which is Christ, they often contradicted themselves. And those who by human birth were more ancient than Christ, when they tried to consider and prove things by reason, were brought before the tribunals as impious persons and busybodies. And what he then goes on to say over here is that it is only with the knowledge that comes from above, from the Father of lights, that any of the minor lights that are there in nature and can be partially understood by human beings who are corrupted by sin, the only way that it can all be put together and everything that uh, each part of this natural inheritance really yearns to say be exploited to the full is if what happens is it learns what it is truly all about underneath the full message uh, of revelation, the full message of Christ. Now, it's interesting even in this regard that, uh, that uh, uh, Plato had already indicated something of the same sort when he was having fights with sophists and he said that the sophists speak well, 
They speak well, and they seem to teach you how to speak well, but they don't even understand the rules of their own science of speaking. Because what they do is they end up teaching you uh, rules for speaking which trap you in captious arguments which go nowhere. And why? Because they need philosophy to be able to explain what the rules of rhetoric, which they know in a very simple practical way, really are all about and what they are really for. Uh, Tertullian says the same thing as well. He points out the, uh, the, the, the glories of much of Roman legal practice. And then what he does is he shows that the application of quite solid Roman legal practices to the Christians ends up bringing the Romans into contradiction with their own principles. I don't want to take too much time with this, but just to give you an instance of what I mean, uh, how is it the case that anyone dealing with Roman legal principles in any other regard how is it the case that what you would do as Roman suggestions for dealing with the Christians um, indicated in the second century, that you would drag Christians before you in order to try to use all of the weapons of the police and the law to have these Christians confess that they're innocent? Uh, the, the idea was that what you had to do was to bring them up before the courts of law and then get the Christians to admit that they weren't Christians. This is like dragging criminals before the police and begging the criminals to say that they're not guilty. Now, uh, Tertullian indicates this is madness. And the reason why it's madness is because the good that's in the Roman law needs something to bring it into harmony with itself. Now, it's not, as we'll see when we discuss the tensions that are going to come up here, always the case that the parent, so to speak, the donor, from the ancient Roman past is going to recognize fully the fact that it has this need for completion and uh, correction and transformation, but a good deal of the time it does recognize it. A good deal of the time it does see it and it does convert. It recognized at least for its own survival and its own self-interest that it had to convert to Christianity, and there are numerous occasions in the era that I'm discussing here to the eve of the Great Western Schism where imperial forces under varying conditions so recognized that they needed the church for their own benefit that they succored the church when she was in, uh, under trial and that they sought to restore her when she was moribund. Now, the work of completing and transforming does involve a correction, a correction that comes from revelation and grace. However much you might take some of the physical structure for the church around you from a successful natural institution, uh, that's not what the essence of the reason for the church's existence is all about. What is necessary is to put what it is that you are inheriting under the guidance of the kingship of Christ. And what this means, and this flows quite clearly from what I just mentioned about concerning the need to, uh, to, to adopt what tools came from a successful body, the Roman Empire, and use them for another body, the mystical body of Christ, the body of the church, 
What happens in order to affect this correction of the inheritance is that you literally have two bodies that are now existing that are going to uh, be called upon in the Christian understanding of things to guide the world. I think this is very significant for all of us to remember when we debate with um, our opponents who talk to us constantly about separation of church and state and the fact that Christianity violates the separation of church and state. There is no such thing as separation of church and state until there is Christianity. It's only when you get two bodies that you can talk about the distinctions of the two bodies. Without two bodies, what you inevitably have is some force that tries to take control of everything that involves man's soul as well as man's body. So flip it around at times when you're discussing uh, things with people who talk about the separation of church and state and complain that they have no ability to be able to even discuss the subject until they recognize the reality of a separate body that has a responsibility uh, for our lives. But the church, when it insisted upon this corrective function on the part of a separate body, does so once again in recognition of St. Justin Martyr's understanding of things. It does so without trying to destroy in any way the particular character, the peculiar character of the seed. The seed in, the term, in terms of the empire itself, the seed in, the term of, in terms of the paideia, the education, that the empire offered because the church needs them too. And through the centuries, despite the tensions I'm going to talk about, the church has very, very often tried to succor the imperial structure when it was in difficulties and has sought to restore it when it was moribund. So that over the, uh, over the, uh, the time period of the first millennium of the church, there develops an understanding of the fact and here what I'll do is I'll just for the moment adopt the Eastern terminology for, uh, for this, uh, this um, harmony. There's an understanding of the need for a symphonia, a, a, a harmonization of what it is that is there from nature and has a permanent value and cannot be abandoned and will never be superfluous and what it is that must complete it, must correct it, must transform it. If you go back to the period of the initial conversion of the empire and an adoption of the inheritance for the sake of completing and correcting and transforming it, and you look at the enthusiasm of the, um, the, uh, the first Christian poets and some of the church fathers over the possibilities here, you can get a sense of their, their, their uh, grasp of the sursum corda that takes place with the ancient world in this regard. The Christian poet, the great Spanish Christian poet Prudentius, his writings in the late 300s and early 400s, they're redolent with this joy over the fact that Rome and Christianity are now going to be in symphonia. St. Ambrose, one of the passages that I very much love of St. Ambrose is when St. Ambrose um, rejoices as a man from a senatorial family, becoming Bishop of Milan in the late 300s, St. Ambrose, Ambrose rejoices and says, my love for Rome has been confirmed and enhanced 
Why? Because Rome recognized where she was wrong and accepted correction. Now, this comes from a man who loves his Roman inheritance, who uh, wants to preserve that Roman inheritance, who under no circumstances even yet foresees the potential collapse in certain respects of the actual state, even though it's there on the horizon. And at the same time, he says, Rome has proven its glory by recognizing it needed correction. This is another thing that uh, quite seriously irks me constantly in the current discussions about, about, um, about uh, uh, trying to, trying to um, uh, gel together Christianity with other cultures. Uh, there's no problem trying to gel Christianity with other cultures as long as they are corrected, where they cannot fit together with Christianity. And somehow or other, it seems to be the case that only the Romans and the Greeks had to change and be corrected. That was all right, but no one else is expected to change and correct. Well, I would say that it's best to take an example from Greece and Rome and see that it is very much possible to have a substantive natural culture that then recognizes flaws, changes due to the message of Christ, uh, is improved and perfected by coming underneath the kingship of Christ. Now, having said all that, this is not easy. It's not easy. Uh, and one way of introducing the, um, the lack of ease in this whole, this whole matter is by, by recognizing the kind of odd relationship in certain respects we've got here. We've got the Roman inheritance in the broad way that I've described it as a kind of student. It's a student before the teacher, the teacher as Christ, the teacher as the church. But the teacher, Christ and the church, is, always, is also telling us that in a certain sense, we have to learn something from the student because we don't learn everything through the message of Revelation. We have to learn certain things through our natural tools alone, and in this regard, we're learning from Rome. And this is, as a teacher myself, something that I would have to indicate would create an awkward relationship. I'm the teacher teaching the student who is teaching me. Um, and I am the one who creates the umbrella in which the joint teaching is to take place, and I have the final word um, that fits together neatly, but is it always easy? Well, no. Um, it couldn't possibly be always easy. What we've got here set up is what I like to, uh, uh, like to describe as a, a difficult dance. It's a dance that you're involved in. I think I mentioned this in my discussion last year. It's a difficult dance, and the dance involves the teacher dancing with the student, so to speak, the, the heir dancing with the donor, and by the, same, by the same token, both forces that are involved in this enterprise being forces whose agents, the agents of the church and the agents of the state and the Roman inheritance, are limited human beings. And in their limited and potentially uh, sinful actions, they can very, very much mess up the symphonia. They can very much uh, mess up the dance that's involved here. And they can mess it up in the same number of ways that people on a ballroom floor can mess, mess things up. 
Um, and um, those kinds of dilemmas I don't want to go into in detail because what it does is it reminds me of dancing with my wife and the kinds of problems that can come up in trying to get two uh, uh, quite different figures to move along in the same way um, in a manner that sometimes causes me to try to solve the problem by a not quite harmonious method, namely just picking her up uh, and then uh, carrying her around the room. Now. Uh, let me just dwell on that for a moment before I actually go into examples here in a way that now will drag our, our story down to the papacy level itself. Uh, let's remember that it, it is necessary for us to examine the tensions and the difficulties. It's necessary uh, without worrying that by examining the difficulties we're somehow or other weakening the substance of, of, of the message that's being taught here. The, the Greeks, with drama and with the discovery of drama, they, they recognized, as they uh, indicated in the, the, the various festivals that they had, that you had to have uh, a performance of tragedy and comedy uh, at the same time. Tragedy in the sense of something that indicates the drama of life with the truth, with all the problems of the truth in, uh, in, in and of themselves, and then comedy to recognize that oftentimes those people who are the bearers of the truth, even, even when they, they, they have the substance of the truth and what they're saying is correct, um, that they can slip on a banana peel, uh, that they can make um, a, um, a, a situation that is dramatic and true in and of itself ridiculous by certain actions or certain missteps, perhaps would be the better, the better word here. And it's not a problem to look at the comedy as long as one remembers the tragedy. It's not a comedy to look at the missteps as long as the drama of truth and its reality, um, its, its, um, its, its permanence is understood. As being, as being there, as being real, as being the structure in which you're discussing um, human foibles. Now, I want to give examples of the tensions that are involved from two eras, and they are eras that take us from the 300s, from the time that the, the empire converts publicly, slowly through the course of the 300s, first just admitting the existence of the church as a legal physical body and then slowly through the rest of the fourth century converting down to the eve of the great western schism and thank the lord i don't have to talk about the great western schism uh because that's that's another another problem that um that uh that uh i i, I gladly leave uh to father when he comes onto the onto the stage uh what i want to talk about are two eras the first the era that can be called Imperial Christendom, par excellence. It takes various forms that I can't separate out too much in this lecture without bogging us down in too many historical details. But Imperial Christendom from the 300s down through to the 1000s, down through to uh, the, um, the next, the change of the millennium. And then what I want to do is I want to move on to discuss certain tensions from the period of high medieval Christendom, from the 1000s down to the 1300s. And both of the, 
the eras and the examples that I give from them are, are meant to indicate that the dance is difficult. The dance is difficult. When we get to the end of the discussion of the second era, we're going to see that this is going to cause certain people who take us to the eve of modernity, uh, it's going to cause certain people to say that the only way out of this is to give up the dance entirely. All right, let's look at imperial Christendom, 300s to the 10 hundreds, in the form of the Christendom of the empire, both in the west and the east, and then also the restored empire under Charlemagne from the um, late 700s onwards, in ways, as I say, and I apologize uh, that I can't do this, that I can't separate out uh, historically too much. In this era, both partners to the dance accept one another. They both accept one another as bodies. They, they, they admit that you've got the physical body of the empire and whatever it is that it looks to for intellectual guidance uh, to survive, and then the other body of the church with its, its authorities and its, uh, its um, sources of reference. However, it's clear on numerous occasions in the whole period from the 300s to the 1000s, and in some cases even later, that there is a temptation, a very great temptation, on the part of the Roman state to overturn the proper relationship of these two, to tilt the relationship of teacher to more to the state side than to the, uh, the church's side, in exchange for a uh, firm recognition legally of the body of the church and a firm recognition of it legally with all of the properties that can accrue to it as a result of being a legal institution. Now, as we know, there are unfortunately in the history of the church all too many prelates who are very ready to accept a somewhat easy life by gaining the benefits that come along with being a leader of a body with physical, physical support to it in exchange for allowing the tilt to the other side to take place. In other words, there's a, a usurpation, a temptation to a usurpation of the prestige and the function of the teacher in a way that doesn't deny the reality of the other side and often seems to have the other side's approval. And the real author of the entire system tilted to uh, the state side of the picture, the real intellectual author, is Bishop Eusebius of Caesarea of the 300s, a, a cooperator with the Emperor Constantine, who exalts the sacred character of the imperial system in a way that inserts, in a fashion that overturns the hierarchy of values here, inserts the emperor into functions which really belong to the apostles and their successors. And if you ever look at the uh, terms utilized by the Roman state from Constantine's time onwards, you'll see the emperor is referred to as the apostolic emperor. His court is the apostolic palace. What I like best is that the taxes are called the divine collection. <laughs> the divine collection. And along with this goes the assumption that Rome is eternal. Rome as it is, 
at the point where Constantine was operating with two centers in Constantinople in the east and then in varied places in the west, it's eternal. So that this, this, this uh, two-body structure tilted towards the old, the old donor rather than the heir as teacher sees itself as playing this apostolic role in an exaggerated sense and eternal while doing so. Now, what I would argue is that this is a victory. This is a victory of the inheritance over the air. This is a victory of the inheritance over the perfecting, correcting, transforming role of the air. It's a victory of the customary over what is the teaching of Christ. It's the victory of custom over apostolic tradition in a way that critics of what takes place here are going to recognize. And now to go back to the East for another term, which I'm not using in as favorable a sense as I use the word symphonia, uh, there is a term that Eastern, uh, Eastern churchmen often call up to try to justify this tilting on the other side, and it's the term economia. And that term economia is used to indicate a need to adjust a need to adjust the position. Not, not really in the same way that we would talk about uh, the hypothesis as opposed to the thesis, uh, the prudential as opposed to uh, the doctrinal, but an economia in the sense of just simply saying, uh, let's just let sleeping dogs lie. In a way, that works to create quite odd situations in the relationship of emperor and bishops, particularly uh, in, the, in the East. And that too I'll get back to in a minute. Now, what happens if what you do is you tilt to the inheritance rather than to the perfecting and correcting role of the heir who gains the inheritance? That means, to go back to St. Justin Martyr, that all that you are inheriting remains in its incomplete state. It remains in its incomplete state it gets involved in contradictions. It uh, ends up becoming insipid. It makes reference to force alone in order to be able to uh, ensure obedience to its will. And this, we know, is reflected very, very much in a lot of the imperial decisions about what was needed to be done for doctrinal purposes to maintain peace in the Roman Empire in a fashion that gave aid and comfort to a variety of heresies, often destructive to the political authority of the international empire in the long run as well. Um, it's something in uh, its, uh, its, its uh, re reducing to its incomplete state that also makes it incapable of dealing with its real inefficiencies, its real insufficiencies as a, um, as a system that is escaping from the true correcting, completing, transforming function of the real teacher, who is Christ the educator, um, and his mystical body. Now, in, in the work of trying to correct what has been tilted by people like Eusebius of Caesarea and Constantine and others afterwards, in the work of correcting this and establishing the right terms of the dance, the right steps of the dance, the papacy plays a very, very great role. And what I think, if you want to play uh, an ecumenical um, role 
again, in debating with people, play this one, because the role of the papacy in reestablishing a proper understanding of the functions, and especially the teaching function of the two bodies, does so very much under Greek influence, under Eastern Greek influence. In the course of the 600s and 700s, there is a tremendous influx into Rome of Greek refugees from imperial high-handedness over issues concerning heresy from the East. And these Greeks often become popes in the 600s and 700s. And even when they're not, they are there pushing the popes to do what it is that they must do on this occasion, as on many occasions afterwards, when Rome, rather than being awakened to its full responsibilities, is asleep. Uh, one of the great relationships in this regard is the relationship between uh, Pope St. Martin I and St. Maximus the Confessor, Roman Pope, Greek, a man who didn't even have to learn Latin to function in Rome because of the fact that Greeks were so important in the city at that time. These two men suffered in order to be able to restore a recognition of the proper teaching function of the papacy vis-a-vis -vis an emperor that had got too apostolic for his own good and for the good of the church. And the one, they both of them end up being thrown into the most atrocious conditions with St. Maximus the Confessor having the tongue and the hands that spoke and wrote against the tilt to the wrong direction taken off. In this regard also, St. Isidore of Seville plays a major role. St. Isidore of Seville in the 600s is a man who emphasizes the fact that in order for any kind of imperial inheritance to play its role properly, it has to show that it is under the kingship of Christ. And if it is not, and if it is not doing what it's supposed to be doing, then there is no longer a need to treat that donor of a Roman uh, political sense in the same kind of respectful way uh, as you would one that does. You'd have to look for some other force that would be able to do what a Roman state completed and perfected and transformed in Christ would do. And he uh, thought that this meant uh, looking to the barbarians uh, in, in the West for, for some kind of succor. The monks of Cluny in the 900s and 1000s, they end up playing a major role in redressing problems that existed here. And in this respect, I just want to mention one important thing, one important question that they address, that then the entire Gregorian reform, named after Pope St. Gregory VII, and the high Middle Ages that we're, we're moving into quite, quite soon, uh, then took seriously. And what they did is they addressed this misconception that illustrates once more the mistakes that you can make if you adopt an incomplete customary understanding of the role of something ancient and venerable without it being corrected and transformed in Christ. And the misconception that they correct is the idea, which was very, very much, uh, very much prevalent, uh, especially in Western Europe, 
in the, um, the period up until the 900s and 1000s, that the job of transforming all things in Christ, the job of sanctifying the world, the job of doing everything that would give a reality to the, complete, the, the, the completion of, uh, of what it is that nature had in germ within it, and then more as well, that that job was one only for the emperor and for his court bishops alone. That the whole work of trying to make yourself a saint was something that only the emperor and his court bishops had to do. And with the rest of the population just there in an inert manner, carrying out their normal activities and in effect sanctified by proxy. All of this rediscovery, awakening of the papacy with Greek help, uh, recognition that the idea of Rome might not be fixed to a particular geographical place, and a recognition that we're all of it, all of us involved in the activity, all this is going to be at the center of what it is that is the glory of the high Middle Ages, that we all of us have a responsibility to come under the kingship of Christ and add our little bit to what it is that this really means. Now, um, what is the result then of the critique that's going to take place of the tilt towards the state and the incomplete inheritance with all of its contradictions and confusions? Well, the church is going to preside, excuse me, preside over the whole work of sacralization of nature in a world where the intellectuals that, uh, that teach what exactly this means are going to say that the empire retains an important role, but which is more complex than people thought of when they were buried in their customary loyalties. It's more complex not only because it involves every individual taking a role in this, it's more complex because it involves every individual in a complex network of different societies, what we call a corporate society, a society of many societies, in which each family and in which each educational institution and each guild um, and government on all sorts of levels have particular roles. And the church is going to preside over this with St. Isidore's idea in the background that it is not the case that what Rome represents in terms of its law, in terms of its legal procedures, in terms of its administrative structures, is something that is fixed to one place. But it's something that has an eternal value that could be underneath the control and guidance of uh, Visigoths in Spain, or Franks in Gaul and in Western Germany, or Saxons in Germany uh, with the second revival of the empire in the 900s and the 1000s, that the idea of Rome and what its substance is all about, completed through the teaching of the church, it, it can be translated everywhere. It can be translated everywhere. Now that brings me into the second era of examples that I want to give. And this is the era of the High Middle Ages, High Medieval Christendom, from the 1000s through to the 1300s, to the eve of the Great Western Schism, where I'll be leaving off. In the midst of this building up, in contrast to the kind of vision of a Christendom guided by an apostolic emperor, 
uh, associating himself with the work of bishops that Eusebius of Caesarea had, uh, had argued for. Um, in this, this building of the contrasting, awakened understanding of what the true apostolic tradition is all about, the role of the papacy at the center of the guidance given by the church is, is now in the period from the 1000s to the 1300s going to reach its peak of validation. And it does so with reference uh, particularly to the phrase, the plenitude of papal power. The plenitude of papal power <coughs> within the church for accepting the inheritance, <coughs> perfecting it, correcting it, and transforming it. And in its most noble, in its most noble form, you can see, um, as I, I've, I've indicated in previous lectures and in, in, in the book, um, you can see how Pope Innocent III, at the end of the 1100s and the early 1200s, wonderfully summarizes what the essence of this use of the plenitude of papal power ought to be for. Innocent III is an interesting figure in any number of regards, uh, one of which is the fact that uh, he recognized, once again, uh, building on what I mentioned before, the value of this complex corporate society that had grown up around him and was much, much more um, energetic and vital than a purely imperial-guided society, and he was particularly enamored of his experience at the corporation, the, 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 the society, uh, the transforming society uh, as well, of the University of Paris, or the budding University of Paris, that he does a great deal to put on a legal footing. And at the University of Paris, he encountered a teacher who was very important for indicating that the, the uh, stimulus that comes from the revelation and the grace of Christ in the mystical body of Christ is something that um, is put into practice in very distinct pastoral forms with regard to every group of people because you can't nurture each group of people and the individuals who are part of them without really devoting your attention directly to a lot of the specific problems of the daily lives of, 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 of merchants as opposed to farmers, as opposed to soldiers, all require a new kind of pastoral work, which he then gives his heart to trying to promote as the example of his support for the Franciscans and Dominicans indicates. And in the Fourth Lateran Council, in the first, uh, second decade of the, um, of the 13th century, what you see is a translation of innocence understanding of what the entire church, guided by the papacy, must do in order to make the, 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 the charge of grace and of revelation, uh, make it brought down to every level in sacramental life, in parish life, in every regard, using every tool at your disposal with these shock troops of Franciscans and Dominicans wandering everywhere in order to take up functions that priests who are at home and monks who are bound to their monasteries could not do. It's a, a marvelous, vital, energetic, innovative way of making apostolic tradition and not custom and simply familiarity with what it is that's been handed down to the past really, really take root. 
Uh, I don't like the word values in and of itself, but there's one historian who talks about the whole period of the high Middle Ages as the time when values descended to the earth. When finally a recognition that there really was a need to operate not in what my friend Chris Ferrara calls the flatland, where everything is judged in relation to all of the material conditions around you, but in relation to what really does come from above, from the Father of Lights. And in doing this, what you have is an international Roman, in that regard as well, imperial, using administrative structures, using law, using legal procedures coming from Rome, and paideia, rooted in what came from ancient Greco-Roman Greco culture, being utilized by an imperial papacy uh, in a way that is dedicated to this perfecting, correcting message. Now, there is resistance to this because the dance and the difficulties of the dance never end. There's resistance by a frozen East, a frozen East that cannot manage to deal with an awakened papacy despite the work, the vast work that was done by Eastern Christianity in giving the papacy an understanding of what its real role was all about, an East that cannot really come to terms with uh, a papacy that's understood fully what its mission is, and hence the separation that takes place that has never uh, been resolved, leading the East into another set of problems which we don't have time to go into today. Uh, it's, it's not so much that the Eastern churches from the 10 hundreds onwards are trapped in a slavish uh, concern for economia. There's a, 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 more, a greater balancing out in that regard. What's more the case in the East is it tends to get frozen in a sense of where the mixing of the inheritance and the transformation take place that gets ever more bound to an ever more impotent Constantinople and an ever more parochial understanding of how it is that being part of a given group ethnically uh, and uh, retaining the particular ritual, uh, ritual practices of that group, overestimating just how much that plays a role in understanding how to make the Christian message um, valid and practical. But it's not just by a frozen East that there's resistance to this charged up papacy. Uh, there's continued resistance by imperialists, by people who are supporters of empire, who look upon the customary, the customary uh, understanding of the role of the emperor as handed down from the time of Constantine as trumping the apostolic tradition as I'm arguing that ap that apostolic tradition is all about. And in this regard, it's in this regard that St. Gregory VII um, takes from Tertullian a quotation to criticize this mentality and says, Christ did not say, I am what is customary. Christ said, I am the truth. And sometimes because of long-lasting abuse, what is not the truth, what is merely customary, can look to people as though it is the truth. And this is one of the greatest dangers of what happens when the church sleeps as a whole and when the papacy sleeps as well. Now that brings me to the criticism of the imperial papacy that's made by many concerned Catholics. By many concerned Catholics. And here we're not talking about a criticism of 
the church in its corrective, perfecting, transforming function and the papacy at the center of it, but what you're rooting yourself in primarily in doing this, what you're looking to for support in doing this, what it is that you really see as being the fuel for being able to accomplish this mission. And concerned Catholics in the 10, 11, 12, 1300s were very upset that it looked as though the hierarchy of values was being overturned on many, many occasions by the papacy itself. Uh, and therefore, what was happening was that it was not looking many, many times to its strength from Christ, its strength from the sacraments, its strength from revelation, but precisely to its administrative, its legal, its legal procedural aids. Flipping this around, taking the one that should be subordinate to the other and making it the guideline. In which case, what you would be doing is you would be trying to transform all things in Christ on a political, legal, flat, uncorrupted, uh, 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 uncorrected, and therefore incomplete and contradictory way. And the best, best early indication of this problem is uh, St. Saint, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, who, uh, one of whose pupils, Eugenius III, became pope. And he wrote this famous admonition when he became pope, and this is in the 1100s, when the situation had not got as bad as it does get later. I know the place where you now dwell, he says. Unbelievers and enemies of good order are about you. He's talking about Rome, the court of Rome. They are wolves, not sheep. Of such as these, you are nonetheless the shepherd. Before you lies the practical problem, how to convert them. He's talking about how to convert his own officials. How to convert them, if this be possible, before they have perverted you. If I spare you not here and now, it is that you may one day be spared by God. To this race, he's talking about the legal men, the bureaucrats, the ones who are dominating more and more. To this race, you must show yourself a shepherd or deny your pastoral office. Deny it you will not, lest he whose seat you hold deny you to be his heir. Peter, that is to say, who had not learnt in those far-off times to show himself decked out in silks and jewelry. No golden canopy shaded his head, nor felt he ever the white horse between his knees. There was no soldiery to support him, nor did he go about hedged round by a crowd of noisy servitors. Without any of these trappings, he nonetheless thought it possible to fulfill the commandment of our Lord, If you lovest me, feed my sheep. In all this pomp, you show yourself a successor indeed, but to Constantine, not to Peter. He talks about visiting Rome. The palace resounds with the sound of laws, but they are the laws of Justinian, not those of the Lord. Is not the enriching of ambition the object of the whole laborious practice of the laws and canons? Is not all Italy a yawning gulf of insatiable avarice and rapacity for the spoil it offers? So that the church has become like a robber's den, full of the plunder of travelers. Perhaps he forces the note. Uh, but by the same token, the main point is clear. Your strength is in Christ and not in Roman administrative procedures, political maneuverings, law, and the like. And this has got to be dealt with. And unfortunately, um, as the period from Innocent III 
moves through the rest of the 1200s into the 1300s, rather than getting better in line with St. Bernard's admonition, the situation indicating that political maneuverings, questions of placing figures in given uh, states, uh, uh, parrying political moves by emperors or, 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 or various rulers, and then dealing with the problems of the church, including the uh, discovery of uh, funds for paying for the officials of Rome, uh, leads to all kinds of terrible, terrible abuses which the church is going to have to pay for in the future, of which, of course, the most famous is to try to find a way to pay for the uh, bureaucracy in Rome by giving to the bureaucrats who remain in Rome livings from dioceses or from monasteries that are many, many um, hundreds of miles away that they will probably never go to visit. Um, and then to multiply the number of these dioceses or monasteries under control in order to reward uh, very, very sound bureaucrats in ways that create um, a, multiple, a multiplicity of dioceses that will never see you and will never be guided by you. Now, how do we correct this problem? Well, and let me assure you that we are step-by-step step approaching the end. Uh, um, how do you deal with this problem? One method, and this is going to be the method that the modern world is going to cherish, you eliminate the problems of the dance by closing down the ballroom. You know, you close down the ballroom. It's very easy to eliminate the problem of symphonia, of dancing properly, properly by stopping the dance. Stopping the dance. And by stopping the dance, by eliminating one of the partners. In that regard, you could keep the ballroom open and just twirl around by yourself. And in this case, you wouldn't have the difficulty of picking your wife up if uh, she doesn't want to uh, dance quite according to the method that you've decided upon. Now, the two great figures, great in terms of influence here that I'm talking about, the two great figures in this regard are men who are very active in the 1300s before the Great Western Schism. And with them and their argument, you have much of, you have really all of what the uh, uh, modernity is going to argue with respect to not just church-state relations, but a lot of other issues that uh, involve the inheritance intellectually from the past and other matters we can't go into. One is a rather mysterious character, Marsilius of Padua, whom we don't know all that much about, except that he came from heretical circles in Italy and played a major role at the University of Paris. Uh, these are people who were most active in the first um, three, four decades of the 1300s. And the other, William of Ockham, an Englishman philosopher, who also, along with Marsilius of Padua, is going to play a major role in uh, the last great imperial papal struggle, whose details are, 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 are much too uh, complicated here uh, to, to discuss as well. It's their ideas we're concerned about. And their idea, their ideas for dealing with the tensions of the dance regarding acceptance but also correction of the inheritance is to just simply return to one um, as a guide, to, turn, to return to the donor as a guide, at least politically. Um, and even when you return to the donor, whose inheritance the church in a very broad way uh, accepted, it's the donor, the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor, the Roman state, um, in a way that's incomplete and doesn't take seriously 
any of the other seeds of the logo, seeds of the word, valuable natural tools like philosophy that the ancient world had developed because men like William of Ockham look upon philosophy as being incapable of giving you any kind of substantive universal guidance uh, that you can work with together with uh, revelation and uh, theology. Um, they say the way to deal with the problems of the dance is to get rid of the partner that we call the church, the body of the church. They don't argue that this is going to end Christianity's influence, but they are going to get rid of the body. We just have one body that's going to be left, and this is well described for us in the work of Marsilius of Padua called the Defender of the Peace, the Defensor Pacis. Peace is troubled. Why is it troubled? Because there's this dance and in this dance, there is this, um, uh, this, this dangerous papacy that has forced its way into the jitterbug. And if what you're going to do is you're going to have a peaceful twirl, what you've got to do is get that papacy and get that church as a body so that the defender of the peace, who is the emperor uh, of the empire in an untrammeled way, in an untrammeled way, the emperor can provide law and order and guarantee peace. But there's a big problem here. And in this particular respect, William of Ockham's uh, involvement as an ally, kind of trouble, troublesome ally, but an ally of Marsilius of Padua, plays a major role in his attack on philosophy and thought um, in some sort of substantive uh, guiding way as a whole. Because you've got this little, little problem, and the little problem is, how do you define peace? How do you define law? And how do you define order? Well, it's clear through Marsilius and William of Ockham that it's not going to be through any structure like the church or the papacy. And I would argue, despite anything that they might have said at the time, without the papacy and without the church, without the body, the Christian message flutters away into outer space. No, both Marsilius and William said Christ was humble and poor. And he doesn't mean humble and poor in the St. Peter sense that St. Bernard was talking about because he was forcing the note a little bit there, St. Bernard. They mean humble and poor in the sense of sit down and shut up. They mean humble and poor in the sense of learning and obeying from the world around you rather than, uh, rather than perfecting and correcting, uh, Christ was humble and poor, and therefore he would not rule, and that's why he rejected kingship while he was alive on earth. And his church has violated his mission by seeking to become a vigorous body that wants to rule. And then Occam comes along and says, you, you know, you can't use, we've, we've got the church as a teaching force out of the picture. And then Occam comes along and says, well, you can't use philosophical ideas to fill in the gap to understand what peace and law and order are all about. So what have you got left? You've got the triumph of the will. All you've got is will. Or as uh, one, one um, very, very great French critic of this whole period from the 1930s and 40s said, uh, law, underneath this argument, is what you must do in order not to get hung. All right, That's what law is all about. And therefore, an ordered society is one that marches to the commands of the triumphant will, 
in order that it doesn't get hung. All right, this is more in the line of the, uh, the, the ancient critic of Rome who said that um, uh, you created a desert and call it order. This is not just flat land, this is a concentration camp that you're talking about potentially being set up here. And if what you do, once again, to beat a dead horse, if what you do is you remove St. Justin Martyr's um, uh, perfecting and correcting transforming revelatory message and grace from the seeds of the Logos, all of this becomes totally contradictory, force-filled, insipid, um, and meaningless in the long run. And you can see this in, quite frankly, the absolutely bizarre set of contradictions that one discovers in Marsilius and Williams' advice to the emperor at the time in the 1300s in a battle with the pope in order to try to uh, get the upper hand from them again. Uh, the emperor's position in Rome was always tricky. The emperor, uh, even though he was the supreme commander and really did what he wanted, was always said in ancient Rome to be dependent on the people of Rome. And Marsilius and William say, it's the emperor that counts, but he is, of course, backed by the people. But then couldn't the people contradict the will of the emperor? Well, yes, but then the people's will has to be prepared in order to be able to reflect what the emperor's will is. And since we've got thinkers operating in here, their understanding of things is, of course, that their role in preparing the people's will and the emperor's will will be paramount. This is a classic sophist argument from Isocrates onwards. So you've got this mishmash. The emperor's will is supreme, but it's based on the people whose will is supreme. But the people have to be prepared to say what they must say in order to get the will of the emperor across. But the will of the emperor really should listen to the teachers that are not the teachers that come from the church. It's these usurping authorities of which we have had an over-experience over the course of the past 50 years, who somehow abolish the entire tradition of the church and then tell us that a new one has come in, which must be obeyed under pain of being hung. Um, all right, so you've got all of this. And at the same time, and this is crucial for then ushering in what's going to happen next, at the same time that they're arguing all of this about the emperor, the emperor's will, uh, the importance of this, the institution that we call the empire in the West is a total anachronism. It's a total anachronism. Um, it's as though you had, oh, I don't know, you had uh, somebody gathering together to create a great enthusiasm in order that finally uh, the Articles of Confederation of the United States could triumph. Uh, well, they're, they're not here. They're not here. Where is it? The empire is more and more a structure that is reducing to an impotent control even over the limited area in Germany that it's got some, inst some power in. And do you know what this is going to mean? All of this emphasis upon uh, the, 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 the defender of the peace, whose will has to be promoted, but who is based on the people, but whose will, the people's will that is, is prepared by the thinkers, all of this is going to fall into the hands of national governments, which are more parochial in their outlook, or even lesser princes, or in many cases, city councils in Switzerland and in parts of southern Germany that are guided by charismatic sophists who try to seek and enter into a new dance with 
the national ruler or the city council or the local prince whose will is supreme but is based upon the people but who really should listen to them in guiding what it is that they have to say. It is no accident that when Henry VIII decided to rebel, that one of the first books that his advisors had translated into English and printed was Marsilius of Padua's Defender of the Peace. Right, because it says it, it says it all. With all this, we are ready only for a further uh, push to cause still more chaos coming onto the scene with Luther. And we are right there with all of the tools of modernity uh, and the further degeneration to indicate the, the need for the victory of the will of every individual and every individual whose will on Wednesday can be different from his will on Tuesday without having to worry about justifying it except by means of uh, reference to some sophist who's printed a book or talked on television. We're ready for the whole of the further degeneration. Now, if you were going to correct what St. Bernard of Clairvaux mentioned, if you're going to correct what he mentioned seriously in a way that would allow the, the international imperial church, and imperial I mean in the good sense now, with this uh, inheritance used for the purpose that it's meant to be used for, with the papacy at the center, what you've got to do is you've got to get back in the right hierarchy of values. And I, I've been you know, over and over again repeating in various audiences of mine, I've become very impressed by the writings of St. Catherine of Genova, uh, in the, um, in the um, I forget her exact dates, 1300s, uh, early 1400s, I can't remember right now. But St. Catherine of Genova builds upon um, things that you can find also in some of the uh, um, uh, figure from, who was Bishop of Naples in the 1200s, I think James of Viterbo, but again, I can't remember the name, who argue that one of the tricks of the flatland where you're dragged down into uncorrected nature is to tell you that the answer to the problem is there. So, so you've got a legal problem, so you look for legal fixing, you look for this, you look for that, and you try to turn this knob or that knob or the other knob. But somebody who wants to avoid his, his duty as a priest or a bishop, if you're trapped in this legal nonsense, I don't mean nonsense in the sense has no value, but exaggerated nonsense, can always find an exception, a rule. This is not, you know, I'm, I, I can prove by this procedure that I'm, I'm, I'm really all right. And St. Catherine of Geneva and previous thinkers she worked with said, what you got to do is just look up, look up. And you get out of that mess and you put yourself back into the position of saying, what am I going to tell God? When I'm judged as bishop or priest, am I going to say canon 3, subsection 1, subsection 50 told me that this was a good way to get out of ever residing in my parish? You know, it's just not going to work. You're going to have to look above. Forgive me, Jim, I know I'm repeating something I mentioned at a talk two weeks ago. But, uh, you know, this sounds silly, but, but when I was singing for years in uh, this, um, this uh, New York Oratorio Society, uh, the, the conductor, as tenors, was always looking at us and say, think up, think up. And you might say, that's ridiculous. I've got to take this exercise or do that or do the other thing, which might be helpful. But thinking up works. It works. You know, you think up and stuff that seems like it is a morass you'll never get out of, all of a sudden becomes much, much more clear. But unfortunately, 
in the 1300s, at the time that Marsilius of Padua and uh, William of Ockham are arguing, in the period of the Avignon papacy, which in certain ways looks politically weak, the, the, the legal um, and political uh, uh, thrust of what is done becomes overbearing to the greatest possible degree. I'll just quote you one example I always quote, and you can find many of them. All you got to do is look. Uh, canonists, cardinals, legal thinkers working for the Avignon papacy, what do they do to justify papal power, the plenitude of papal power? They use Occam's arguments and Marsilius of Padua's arguments and say it's his will that counts. And I found many, many statements in which people who were treated as being at the center of papal, um, the papal court said things, and I'm not making this up now, said things like, by the will of the Pope, Scripture can be abolished. Now, is this Catholic? No. And the recognition that it's not Catholic is going to be made in a very, very, um, um, uh, you know, uh, in, a, in a sea of remorse at the time of the Reformation, when the great Reformation Commission that was appointed by Pope Paul III um, to study what had created the mess in the church, said, and this was, this was the Pope's own commission, and they acted on the judgments of it. They said the biggest reason for the problem, they didn't use the words that I'm using, is, not looking, is that you didn't look above. But what they did say is that you got steeped in this political, legal hoo-ha. And what the church needs is its root in its real strength, which is Christ, which sounds like it's a simplistic statement, but we all know that when you try it, it really means something. And we all have friends and relatives who have proven that it means something by getting angry at us when you actually do treat it all very, very seriously. As Louis Riot said, and I always like to, uh, and I'm, I, I am ending, so <laughs> uh, if Louis... As Louis Vio said, I always like to quote him at some point in one of my, one of my talks, um, the problems of the, the enemy. He's talking about Catholic enemies. He said, the problem of our enemies is that um, they are bad insofar as they take their ideas logically and seriously. And that's why we look at them, we say, well, gee, they're often good. And yes, they are indeed often good. And the reason they're good, Vrio says, is because they don't take their ideas to their logical conclusions. It's flipped around for the Catholics. You know, we're good when we take our ideas to their logical conclusions. And we're bad when we don't pay attention to them. So that the way to correct the problem where I'm leaving this discussion off, but in a way, obviously, since uh, this is all meant to bring us back to, to contemporary events. So if you look at, if you look at uh, the papal hymn, Roma Immortale, and you see uh, there's stirring lines in that hymn where it says that force and terror will not prevail. And the modern world that is building up here is a realm of the triumph of the will backed by force and terror alone that masquerades itself under the name of people, ideas, freedom, progress, even the, the, the poor and humble Christ, who somehow blesses this but does nothing about it, uh, force and terror will not prevail. And as that hymn says, there will reign 
truth, and love. But in order for that to be done, we've got to look above. Thank you.